The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold. This interview with NASA astronaut Tracy Caldwell Dyson was recorded on July 16, 2020, and is being broadcast for the first time on KUCI on July 21, 2020. Enjoy. All right, this is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI alumni and NASA astronaut Tracy Caldwell Dyson. In June of 1998, Tracy had been working at the Air UCI lab for about a year on a postdoctoral fellowship when legend has it, she received a phone call that would change her life. Her reaction was oh so human, oh so honest, and oh so hyperventilating that the chief of the astronaut office offered to call her back in a little while to give Tracy a chance to quote-unquote catch her breath. After hanging up, Tracy caught her breath by running around Roland Hall, hollering to her friends and colleagues and anyone who would listen that she had made it. She had been asked to be a NASA astronaut. Wow, wow, wow. Welcome home, Tracy. How are you today? I'm great, Kevin. Thank you. That was quite a trip to nostalgia for me, so thank you for recapping. <laughs> well, you're, you're very welcome. We, we're thrilled to have you here today. Um, you know, any details come to mind from that day? You know, what did you do for the rest of the day? Or <laughs> could you concentrate on work? <laughs> Oh, it was hard. After that fit that I had running through the hallways and up the other lab where the rest of my group was, I realized that they were calling me back, that, that the chief of the office was calling me back. And I had to rush back down to have this conversation and finish it anyway. And the funny part of that is that he said, well, we're glad to have you, Tracy, and uh, we're looking forward to you being in Houston. There'll be a press release that goes out in 24 hours from now with your name and the rest of your classmates' names on it, announcing to the world that you're one of our new astronauts. But until then, we'd like you to limit the news to just your immediate family. <laughs> and uh, there was this, this deafening silence on the phone, and he's like, I think it we're a little late for that. <laughs> so, yeah, it was uh, – I wasn't sure if they'd let me come after that. They let me come anyway. <laughs> uh, that, that's great. Well, I understand that you were living about eight miles away in Tustin, that you, and you rode to work by bike, so you biked home. Were you in an apartment? Do you remember where you were living in Tustin at the time? Just for yeah, a, yeah, uh, I do. Where, uh, where about? I, was, I was near the 5 freeway. Yeah. I lived in the streams. They were considered condominiums, so I was just in a little, little yeah. flat condominium. 
with my dog. And so when I pedaled home, I got in my truck, loaded my dog, and we traveled eastward to where my whole family was. And I visited each one of them at work and told them the news. And we screamed and jumped and, and then had dinner that night. Just shocked what had yeah. just happened. That's fantastic. What was your feeling? Was it just complete excitement? Were you nervous? Was it giddy? Or do you remember? Oh, all of the above. I was I was relieved in a way because I had been praying so deeply uh, through the whole process. Not just, you know, please, Lord, let me make it. But it was like, let your will be done and make it known to me and give me peace through all of this so that I don't go nuts waiting yeah. for the answer. So it was just like a huge answered prayer in a direction that I tried not to dream too deeply into one direction or, you know, just kind of take it as it came. And so it was just such a relief to to have it answered that way. And so I was in shock too of like what just happened to me because, you know, I, I realized that was a gift and it was, a, it was great. There were so many people who applied and so many qualified people that, you know, you start to wonder how, what did they see? What was going on? And, and, but then you also realize I can't wait to get there. My life is completely changing. I'm going to be with people that are amazing. And what is that going to be like? I mean, not that I wasn't already with amazing people, but you know, these were people with backgrounds that were so different than mine. And I was leaving community that I totally understood. I grew up in chemistry and all of that. And then I'm going into this other environment. So it was just a lot of changes, a lot of unknown. So you reported for training at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas in August of 1998. And it looks like you've never looked back. How long was your initial astronaut training? It's pretty standard, interestingly, that it takes about two years to get through the basic training. And that has stayed pretty consistent throughout class after class, though our missions have changed. We went from shuttle to space station to now including exploration to deeper space that it still takes about two years to get people through all the boot camp, basically. Are you being... Tested, does everybody make it or, you know, do some people not make it? Some people don't. It's rare because the, the selection process is a very rigorous one. And it's, you might be surprised there's a lot of people involved in the selection process. And so it does a, a fine job of really narrowing down to the people who can make it. And so as a result, it's rare when someone doesn't. You are tested through the whole process. Well, we call it evaluated. And we're continuing to improve our training, realizing that some people come in with skills in that area. Some people have never experienced some of the things that we're asking them to do. And so we've improved our training so that we can bring people up that we know have the potential but just don't have the background or experience. And so it's been a little bit of a learning process there. Gotcha. So in the year 2000, you received your astronaut wings. And then you weren't assigned to uh, a mission until 2007. So can you briefly tell us about that journey? You know, what is that like? Do you have weekly astronaut staff meetings or no? Sometimes I'll be put on a six-month project and sometimes a couple of weeks. What is that that you're doing? Uh, great question. I have to preface it by saying that an astronaut's career, only a fraction of it is that actually spent training for a mission and living in space. Mm-hmm. The rest of it is supporting the space program in a way that only astronauts can. And mm. uh, when we come back from a flight, of course, we've got this experience and then we can share it 
with the masses who you mm-hmm. are the people who design and manufacture widgets and things like that that go in space, and we're the ones that tell them how it operates. But prior to that, because of all of our training, we give a crew perspective that only comes from people who've been through the training. So that period of time after becoming a full astronaut to my first mission was spent supporting the missions at that time. So it was shuttle missions as well as space station. And space station, when I got there, they were just launching the first element of the space station the year I was selected. And then in 2000 was when we sent our first crew there. And I had been deeply involved with the development and the training from the Russian side. I had a little bit of background in Russian and and I was um, quickly put on that team that was sent over to Russia to help develop products, basically uh, the training products, the, the procedures, the schematics, everything to translate it into crew language and wow. into English. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And I also spent time on the shuttle side working down at Kennedy Space Center where we launched the space shuttles. And we had a team of people there whose job it was to keep track of the state that each orbiter was in and its processing and preparation for each crew that was about to launch. And then my team was the one that strapped the crew into the vehicle the day of launch and all that went with that. And so those are just some examples of what I did to fill my time before my first assignment. And then in addition to all of that, we active astronauts have to maintain proficiency in all areas of training from T-38 to spacewalking to robotics to systems knowledge, et cetera. And so we are very busy despite the fact that we aren't necessarily training for a specific flight. I bet. One big question I've always had is when I've watched the space shuttle launches and to see those massive rockets and the space shuttle doesn't seem to be connected. You know, it's it's a separate flying entity. So the way it's attached to those rockets, do you have any sense how the heck does the whatever, you know, those support beams that are holding, I mean, it's just uncomprehensible that how does that work can you give any insight into that or or no you you're kind of in awe of it too i i don't know (laughs) well i'm like you i'm in awe of what the shuttle did but i i have a little bit of insight not the least of which is one of the pyro bolts half of it sitting here on my shelf um, as a bookend each one of us on the crew got a, a bolt from the back what you receive is actually from your launch. Yeah, I probably should have explained how the stack is created. The stack is what the shuttle is attached to. It's hardware from our launch vehicle. Gotcha. So there's two solid rocket boosters, and those are the giant white candles that light that really are the workhorse of getting us off of the Earth and accelerating to the velocity that is required to escape Earth's velocity. And then there's an external tank in the middle that those two solid rocket boosters are attached to. And that's the orange thing that you right. see in the whole stack. And then the shuttle is attached to the external tank. Yeah. And that's how it rides up. And so the way that it stays on the pad is that those two solid rocket boosters at the base are attached by nuts and bolts to yeah. the launch pad, to the launch platform, basically. The launch okay, platform exactly. rolls the whole stack up to the launch pad. And those bolts, so there's four bolts on each SRB, so eight total. And so there's usually seven people on a shuttle crew. So when the pyro fires, those bolts split in half, and that's how the SRB, when it's ready to go, comes off of the pad. So they make bookshelf stands 
for each one of us out of the, the half of these bolts. And so <laughs> they're, pretty, cool. they're pretty beefy. Yeah. And it's a nice memento of, of the ride up hill, but that's, that's how the shuttle makes its way to orbit. Plus the three main engines on the shuttle themselves. Once the SRBs have extinguished, which is about two and a half minutes into the flight, the six minutes remaining are on the solid rocket. I mean, are on the, the shuttle main engines and that gets you the rest of the way there. Gotcha. Tracy, excuse me just for a moment. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossmeyer, and my guest today is NASA astronaut and UCI alumni, Tracy Caldwell-Dyson. She's a veteran of two space missions. Her first was as a mission specialist on a 12-day mission in August of 2007 aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavor to the International Space Station. And her second mission was as a flight engineer in 2010 which took place from April to September for 176 days. This mission included launching and landing from Kazakhstan, Russia, and three unplanned spacewalks by Tracy and a fellow astronaut to repair a broken cooling pump on the International Space Station. Tracy, when did you find out that you would be assigned to STS-118? Oh, I think it was about seven months before we actually launched. I was filling in for another crew member who had to be taken off of the flight for whatever reason. And so I didn't have a whole lot of time to train. So about seven months. What's the normal advance? It's usually about, for a shuttle mission back then, it was about a year and a half okay. uh, to, to two years sometimes for yeah. um, certain missions. They were named out that far. Gotcha. So... Are you completely in the dark to the process, or did you know, you know, if anything goes awry, then I'll be asked? Do you have any sense of that, or do you just literally no, get a phone call? That's kind of how it happens. You have absolutely no insight. At least I've never have. You yeah. kind of hear, uh, th- there's some cases where it's kind of obvious because someone has been in their technical work following a certain light or, or hardware, and so it makes sense that they launch and, and work with it kind of thing. But I would say, in general, it's pretty much a mystery to, uh. to anybody in this uh, business. <laughs> gotcha. So did you feel like you had to hump to get ready for the space shuttle mission, or was it methodical and routine? <laughs> yeah, so the luxury of having been in a program for six, seven years, at least as a full astronaut before that, I had a lot of training, a lot of experience already just in the things that we do and my proficiency. So it was more a challenge to learn the specifics of that mission and to get ingrained in that than it was just trying to learn the skills to do the job. And I was on a flight with four other guys who were experienced. And so it was great to be mentored by them. And I was on the flight deck for the ascent and had, you know, I was up there with three guys who were just top notch. And so I just, I felt like I was in really good hands and I learned so much from them. Yeah. Can you say, did you ever feel intimidated a little bit or nah? (laughs) I'm laughing because it's funny, the dynamics when you're with a crew, uh, whenever you're with a group of people and just figuring each other out. I say, no, I wasn't ever intimidated. That's probably my problem uh, sometimes that I'm probably not intimidated enough. But I remember I can speak about this because the pilot on our mission, uh, Charlie Hobart, he and I had a little bit of headbutting at the beginning because I sat behind him on the flight 
And whenever we were flying nominally, when we were training nominally, I just back him up. But when a malfunction would happen, we split the cockpit and I would work with him and Rick, who was sitting next to me, would work with Scott, who was commander. And so we'd split the cockpit. And Charlie, who we call Scorch, didn't think he needed my help. And (laughs) we had fun trying to learn how to work with each other. And by the end of our training, and then certainly by the end of our flight, we were like best friends. It was kind of fun to go through the mud and then come out helping each other have a great mission. So Excellent. I've been watching a few videos. You know, Scott Kelly, he was up there for over a year at one time, and then some of his post-flight speaking engagements. He seems like he has a really robust sense of humor. Is that your experience too, or is that just more of a speaking engagement thing? Yeah, he's a funny guy. Both he and Mark funny guys. I went cross-country with those two to pick up their grandmother in an RV, so I have a lot of lot of experience with those guys personally. So yeah, I could say they're funny. We call Scott grumpy. <laughs> Is that right? Sometimes, yeah, because sometimes he can be funny and when he's irritated about something, but yeah, he's a funny guy. And he tries to be funny. That's, I think, one of the strengths that he has as a commander, a leader of a group, is that he tries to keep it lighthearted. And when he gets serious, then you know this yeah. is time to buckle down. Like, this is a big deal. So it's, it's usually a light switch with him. Gotcha. And just to my listeners, there is a ton of YouTube videos all about the space flights that all the astronauts have been and Tracy space flights too. So I won't go into as many particulars about that. So once you came back, what happened between the space shuttle mission and then actually going up to the international space session from Russia or in a Russian Soyuz based craft? Do you remember what you were working on between the missions? Oh yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't much time in between surprisingly when I came back, They put me right back at, we have a team called Cape Crusaders, or we call them C-squareds for short, but this was the team I was talking about. We would go to KSC and work with the space shuttles. And they sent me right back because I'd already had experience. And we were doing that work when they assigned me to my space station flight. And again, that flight came at, I had less time to train for that than a typical template for a crew member because they had rearranged some flights and outspit this one, and they needed somebody in that who could train quickly, and I got it. I wasn't on the ground long by typical standards uh, between those two flights. And this next flight, this next mission was actually called Expedition 2324. Again, it was from April to September in 2010. And you went up with two Russian cosmonauts. Were you in Russia a lot for that training, or how did that work? I was, Kevin. I was all around the world and spent a lot of time in Russia with those guys. We train in Europe. Munich, Germany is where the European Space Agency has its training facility. Also in Scuba, Japan, the Japanese Space Agency. Montreal, Canada, there's Canada Space Agency. So we travel all over the world doing this training as well as in Moscow at the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center. So yeah, a lot of time was spent there with those guys. Boy, the Soyuz spacecraft in that capsule, that is, is cramped quarter, a, a good <laughs> cramped quarters. It, it is tight. Yes, yeah. cozy. Yeah. 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 It's nothing like a Mercury capsule, but it is smaller than any spacecraft that I have been in. And that is to include our training mock-ups for Orion 
SpaceX and the Boeing Starliner. So, yeah, it is intentionally small. (laughs) Does it just keep the cost down? I think it's just primarily the the Russians that, you know, they, I I think I can say this, they don't put a lot of fluff in some of the things that they do. And and so you look at the Soyuz and it is, it's got the essentials. It's it's robust. It's got what it needs. And so Mm -hmm. part of the reason for keeping a spacecraft small is to keep it lightweight. You don't have to use as much thrust Mm -hmm. to get it uh, where you want it to go. And it doesn't have to be really big because the intent was to get it to the space station. Although our flight was about two and a half days to get to the space station just because of the profile that they chose to fly for us. You're not intended to to be in there for very long. So they didn't build it for comfort where the shuttle was before we had the space station was where, you know, seven crew members had to live together. So it was a bit roomier. Right. So when you're at the International Space Station in 2010, you had a famous incident where there was a cooling pump that went out? Correct. Mm -hmm. There's a large pump that circulates ammonia outside the space station to the radiators, and it carries like a a radiator in your car. It carries the heat from the inside to the outside and then back again. And it had failed. We only have two on orbit. And, and when one fails, you're down to the other one. You have to shift your power loads all over to that side or shut down some power to keep it from overheating. And then you're in this scary posture of having only one pump running. And if it quits, then it's a bad day. And so it, it necessitated our immediate attention. And we went out the hatch pretty quickly to, to fix it. Did you know right away when it happened that you would be one of the spacewalkers? Coincidentally, my partner and I... Doug Wheelock, we were already preparing for a spacewalk, and this was one that we had planned for. We we had actually trained for it on the ground. So when, and this was like a couple of days prior, <laughs> it makes me laugh think about it because of the heroics we had to go through. I mean, when I say we, everybody on the ground too, to, to get ready for this set of EVAs because we were already geared up to go out and do something that was completely benign in comparison to that. So I was getting mentally prepared to go out the hatch but not for that. And it was around, it was close to 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night when it failed. And I happened to be the only one awake because I was busy in a cupola staring at the earth, which was my <laughs> habit every night. And as I was doing my checks around the station before retiring, I was shutting down our treadmill and there was a message that popped up on our control computer and it was strange. And so I called down to mission control and I told them what I saw And so I just happened to be staring at the computer when then the pump module failed. All of a sudden, a bunch of colored messages, yellow and red are the ones mean bad things, just started to pop up on this display. And I was like, what is going on? And quickly, the the message that the pump module had failed popped out at me. And along with Mission Control, we just got geared up for what's going on. And so before we even went out spacewalking, my crewmates and I had to split our sleep and stay up all night. And we were not only transferring science from one freezer that was on that power string to another freezer that was still alive so that we saved science. And then we had to get out power jumpers and rotate racks and start plugging things in that were dead from the other pump to the line that was still alive. And it was just an all night thing. And then we went to bed and the other ones got up to to continue working with mission control So before we ever went out the hatch to fix it, we had to help the space station stay alive. Lots of work. Lots of work to do. (laughs) Yeah. What's that like 
once you open those doors and you are now, you're not in a spacecraft. Well, you're in the spacesuit that's your spacecraft at that point, right? Yeah, you are your own little satellite. I'll tell you what, Kevin, it is like higher than higher depth. I mean, it's, it's what did we have, 8K now? I mean, it's, yeah. it was the first view of the Earth through my visor was wow. one of the most breathtaking moments of my life. It was beyond 3D. It was a big deal. How much are you moving outside? Is it ton? I mean, was, it, was the uh, pump fairly closed, or are there different exit points off the International Space Station, or is there just one, and then you have to make your way? Or what was that like? Yeah, so the the pathway to get to it was kind of straightforward because it's on the, the main truss, that long segment that yeah. goes across the space station, holds the solar rays. That's our truss, and uh, it's, it's a very typical translation path for us. And so it wasn't too far from the airlock, uh, the pump itself, but there were times when we had to go out to the, star, the far starboard end to work with some valves and things like that that were required on the other EBAs, the second and third one. But, yeah, it was just a, a translation out to that. And, um, yes, you are moving all the time, and you stay stationary depending on what you have to do at the work site. But we had to prep the failed, get it ready to come out, move the failed, and then put the spare in its place and then hook it up and then clean up all the work sites. But we had some trouble on our first spacewalk that caused us to have to re-plan the spacewalk. We couldn't get a valve off. And when we did, it was leaking ammonia. And and, uh, it was kind of a, a scary moment for everybody. Is that volatile? Is that why it's scary? It's scary because ammonia is deadly, and if um, we get it on our suits, then which we, we did, we had to what they call bake out. We had to clear it from our suits before we could come into the space station because one of our gravest emergencies is, is an ammonia leak into the space station, the interior uh, of it, hmm. because you, you inhale that and you're dead. And uh, so by getting it on our suit, well, first of all, if we if we had a leak and we couldn't stop the leak outside, then we would deplete our system of ammonia, and that could be costly in terms of thermal control, for thermal control reasons. But the fact that we were working at the source of it and it was coming out and touching our suits meant that we had to stay inside the crew lock before we came. When we were all finished and we were getting ready to come back inside, we had to stay in there for several additional minutes to let it sublime off us, basically just evaporate off of us oh, before gotcha. we brought ourselves inside. So, Gotcha. Just excuse me one more time, Tracy. Uh, if you're joining us late, mm-hmm. y- you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is former anteater and NASA astronaut Tracy Caldwell-Dyson. Tracy grew up in Southern California. She went to Cal State Fullerton for her undergrad in chemistry and then went on to UC Davis for her doctorate degree in chemistry from UC Davis. And then it was then that Tracy came to UCI to do postdoctoral fellowship work in the Air UCI lab under professors John Menninger and Barbara Finlayson Pitts. The story goes that when Tracy got the offer to come to UCI, she candidly disclosed that she had applied to be an NASA astronaut. But the feeling was that Nobody makes it to become an astronaut on their first try. There have been 2,500 applicants. It kept whittling down and whittling down. And, Tracy, you were still in it. But, you know, it was like no one makes it on their first try. But, lo and behold, you did make it on your first try. 
<laughs> wow, what a feeling there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, because you must have been thinking that too. No one makes it on the first try. Well, yeah, I, I told Barbara when she was the one that was interviewing me for the postdoc fellowship. I said, I just got to be real honest with you. It's so unlikely. The chance is really remote, but I submitted an application to the astronaut program. And if selected, I would have to leave after one year of a two-year postdoc. And she's like, yeah, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> and then so then it happened and it was, I think we were all just too excited to really yeah. care that yeah. I was cutting my postdoc in half. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we just got done talking a moment ago about some of your spacewalking endeavors. Today, July 16th, 2020, just moments ago, NASA completed a spacewalk. Bob Benkin and Chris Cassidy, are you, you know, are fellow astronauts, you know, are you well aware? Were you following this or, or no? Everybody has a responsibility. So, you know, you kind of know on an as-needed basis. Can you describe that? Tracy. Oh yeah, uh, no heck yeah! I was I had it on. I was I had on yeah. my iPad and I've got my computers all set up. So I'm working and I'm watching. And yeah, we are all closely tied to all these operations. And in fact, their next spacewalk next week, I'm going to be working part of it. So I'll be uh-huh. up at the wee hours while they're getting dressed in the airlock. I'll be the veteran EVA, the veteran spacewalker that's tied in during those operations so that if anything should happen, I can be there to help consult. So yeah, in other words, we're all tied very closely to the operations. I know Chris and Bob very well. In fact, they live in the same neighborhood as Bob and uh, Megan, Mm. his wife. So we're a small group and we're a close group. So it's hard to do something that the others aren't involved in it with you somehow. You know, that's interesting when you say you're kind of in the same neighborhood, is it just a general public neighborhood or is it actually on the base? Because that recalls the NASA history and folklore of the Gemini program and how the astronauts used to live in the same neighborhoods. Is is that tradition mm-hmm. continuing? Is it on the base or off the base? It's off the base. Yeah, there's oh. no housing on the base, save for our astronaut crew quarters, which we only use for quarantine uh, leading up to a launch. But we all live in the suburbs, the subdivisions outside, most of us outside of NASA Johnson Space Center. Some live up in downtown Houston, some live down in Galveston, but for the most part, we're all located here, east and west of the Johnson Space Center. Can you describe, is there distinct differences between the Johnson Space Center and the Kennedy Space Center? Does it have the same feeling or or no, no, they're very different? Oh, yeah, yeah, they are very different. The Johnson Space Center is where we control the missions. And you have your flight control engineers, your technical community, your operations community, and it's where astronauts train. And so you've got your instructor cadre. And and then we also have engineering and development. We have space and life sciences. We have research and development. It's got a different field because it's mostly buildings and engineering and testing and all that kind of stuff. You go to Kennedy Space Center, and it's much more expansive because they're moving vehicles around. They got launch pads and it's though operations there. It's all geared towards specifically launching and processing of hardware and that kind of a feel to it. And when you go there, you drive your car to get to building the building. When you're at Johnson Space Center, you either ride one of the free range bikes or you, you hoof it kind of thing. So it's a little smaller scale. Gotcha. Have you had any big projects since 
uh, your last space mission, which was to the International Space Station in 2010. Can you give us a broad paintbrush of what you've been doing over the last 10 years? Wow, yes. I've been doing a lot. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Uh, <laughs> I wish we had another um, hour. No kidding. No kidding. I appreciate you asking that because uh, there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes. When I got back, I worked on getting a mock-up in our training facility established because, strangely enough, there is Node 3 module up on board the space station. It's got all of our exercise equipment, our toilet, caution warning, all the bells and whistles, commanding, everything. But we had no module to train in here on the ground. And so part of my job was to convince our program that we needed to invest time and money in getting one of those because it was such an essential part of our Mm -hmm. training. So I, I worked on that. I worked on trying to clean up the stowage situation on board the space station. And that had tentacles that reached from cargo and manifesting cargo onto the space station and getting it off trash and and all the other things, as well as providing crew provisions and tracking and all that kind of stuff. It was just a bit of a, a mess on board the space station from an efficiency standpoint. And so I came back with my recent experience and helped to make some improvements there. So it was a really big involved project with lots of other disciplines involved in it. And then I've worked on visiting vehicles. We've had commercial cargo ships come within that time frame, And so I was part of the team that developed our capsule communicator role for those. And then most recently, I revamped the basic EVA training that our astronaut candidates go through. And before it was a subjectively evaluated process, and I had gone to Corpus Christi Navy Air Base and flew a T-6. And from that, really liked the way that the Navy trained pilots. And I incorporated that paradigm into our spacewalking and was able to get that instituted with the rest of the community involved in spacewalk training. And so our first class, this, this um, 2017 class that just finished, were the first group class to go through that. And they all passed successfully. So I felt really good about it the work that was done there. And then most recently, I've been dedicated to developing the Capcom role for CST-100 Starliner, the Boeing capsule Mm. that is going to be hopefully flying its first test mission with crew next year. And so with that, I train a lot of new astronauts. My main job as the operations officer is to ensure training for all those who are unassigned. And so that is ongoing. So yeah, I've been busy training new astronauts, training even experienced astronauts, keeping folks ready and assignable for a flight. Gotcha. Do you feel like there's a really big difference between SpaceX and the Boeing Starliner? Do you feel like they're generally about the same, or do you feel like there's a big difference? Well, I have more experience with the the details of the Boeing capsule Starliner than I do the Crew Dragon. Yeah, they're distinctively different. They're different companies, different experience. One thing I noticed is Boeing's got quite a few people that used to work shuttle, and so it's got some shuttle influence to it in in some ways that can't avoid when that's where people's experience are. And then the SpaceX side, I don't know the details of the SpaceX capsule as well, but it seems to be a little bit more of a glass cockpit swiping, you know, screens with your finger, things that you're used to with an iPhone, <laughs> uh, as, as opposed to, you know, push buttons that you're, uh, you're used to. Interesting. With a, with a, yeah, but that's, that's like a real uh, broad paintbrush kind of stroke yeah. Uh, yeah. difference yeah. coming I, from someone who doesn't spend a lot of time in the Crew Dragon castle. <laughs> right. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
I interviewed an uh, oncologist professor at UCI a couple of years ago, and he talked about radiation being a big hurdle for astronauts to go to Mars. And I know Scott Kelly going for a year in the space station that, you know, that was part of the reason to see what the effects would be. Are we making progress on astronaut safety in terms of radiation? I think we're always trying to make better with that, especially as we go deeper into space. That's only going to amplify the challenges. And so, yeah, in short, we are always looking at ways to protect astronauts and and not just astronauts, but our spacecraft as well, which, as you know, can be impacted by uh, the space environment and radiation included. So, Gotcha. Uh, I know we only have a few minutes more, Tracy. I I have to say that... um, you know, this is maybe um, not a astronaut question as much in terms of, I recently saw a video, I think it was like women in technology or something, and you were talking about confidence, and I was very touched by your deep answer. And, you know, that's a challenge that everybody has that you work with. And at the same time, I caught your, one of my favorite songs is the Indigo Girls, uh, Closer to Fine. And I'm like, my God, She's a PhD in chemistry, astronaut, and she sings like a rock star. Is there any tie between, you know, does that song have a lot of meaning for you? I think it talks a lot about confidence in the song. I hate to admit it, but it's it was more of a song that Dottie and I like to sing together because we could harmonize. Yeah, you guys sound uh, great. <laughs> Thank you. We love that song for that reason. It has less to do with the coincidence of the lyrics. But yeah, the, the the confidence thing was it's just like no joke, but I think I'm one of the people who will admit it that that yeah. wavers some. And so uh, my dad, I think, was the one who pointed it out to me as my little weakness. And it's something that I got to battle. still do sometimes. But. Well, for all the people that deal with that issue, which I think there's a lot more than... Um, you know, maybe want to admit, I acknowledge you, compliment you, and thank you for sharing that aspect. You're a tremendous leader, and I think a lot of people at UCI are so proud and lucky that you were at UCI for a short period of time, but it is just a thrill to follow your career. Can you briefly tell us when will they be announcing the cruise for the moon, or is that still a ways off, or is it anytime soon? I wish I knew the answer to that, Kevin. It's it's hard to say because we need to announce it in enough time to start training yeah. those crews. But we don't want to do it too soon such that anyone that we do assign, we have to rearrange because of other mission priorities. And we've never in, in the history of our program ever had so many programs going on at the same time. And so, you know, we, we just spoke about two of our commercial crew. We're in a season of test flight with SpaceX and Boeing missions, and we're doing this International Space Station, and we're bringing in new classes of astronauts, and we're trying to get to the moon. And so with that, there's a small cadre of astronauts, and we're all having to be shuffled around. So I think the some of the holdup is just making sure that when we do make the announcement, and when the decision does get made of who will be on those flights, that we don't have to go back and change it later. So I think they're waiting as long as they can but not too long to where it cuts into their training template. So I have no idea when it's going to happen. <laughs> but it should, it should happen soon because we'll have a launch in 2022, I believe, in 2024 that will have pink bodies on it. So they need to get oh, in the, their training. 
did you say there'll be a, a astronaut in a space capsule 2022? Yeah, I think it's 2022 as the dates move around a little bit, yeah. but we will have a, the first test mission will not land on the moon. It will orbit the moon and test ah. out rendezvous capabilities and other things. But then the third, the Artemis three mission is the one that we're uh, going to try to land on the moon. Tracy Caldwell Dyson, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's all my pleasure, Kevin. Thank you so much. And thank you for your, your interest in and all your questions. It's fun talking to you, and I uh, hope your listeners enjoy it. Thank you again to senior astronaut and UCI alumni Tracy Caldwell Dyson for being my delightful guest today. NASA is headed for the moon and beyond, and Tracy is ready. We will be watching and rooting for her. Go, Tracy, and go, NASA. If you're interested in more information about Tracy and NASA, I recommend YouTube and NASA.gov. As always, thank you to blues piano man Fred Kaplan for my show theme music from his great CD signifying. He's got the cool groove. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer. Wishing you a pleasant good evening. Stay safe, socially distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, and you will have happy trails. So long, everybody.